You are listening to Anamkara, a podcast about the spiritual journey and what makes us human. Anamkara is a soul friend, a person with whom you can share your deepest thoughts, feelings, and dreams with. In this podcast, I will share my journey as well as occasionally have guests from myriad different religions and walks of life. And for a time, we walk together and learn from each other's journey. So come along with us and be an Anamkara, a soul friend. Welcome. Thank you so much for being on the show today. All right. Well, let's go ahead and jump in. Tell me, uh, what was life like growing up for you? Where did you grow up and, and did you have any spiritual upbringing? Um, early on, my, my mother was not very heavily spiritual when I was very young. Um, I, from the point that I could talk, I was doing things like talking to flames and interacting with all kinds of inanimate objects in ways that kind of freaked her out a little bit. Um, eventually, she ended up, there was a, a catalyst event that took place where the apartment that we were living in in Georgia burned to the ground. And after that, she got a little freaked out and ended up actually separating from my father and uh, immediately getting with a very fundamentalist Christian. And they got married, I think, two weeks later after we suddenly jetted off to England. Okay, um, and you were you went with mom? Yep. Um, and they, that portion of, of the upbringing was a mixed bag. It was kind of strange. There was the fundamentalist Christian aspect of it, but then also a huge connection to the outdoors. We were hunters and fishers and, and prolific campers. Uh, bushcraft was a big part of my upbringing. Um, and unfortunately the, the sect that they were involved with was a bit of an extremist faction. Um, they're known as the Dominionists. They, okay. Not yeah, familiar. Yeah. They, they believe that everyone should be converted at the point of the gun. Um, so being raised to be a literal Christian soldier, while at the same time also being very close in proximity to nature and animals and all of the things that go with that um, was a strange juxtaposition. On the one hand, you have this extremely world-denying faith that everything is about the afterlife and nothing here matters. But the flip side of it being that I'm constantly in nature, constantly engaging with the natural world and all the spirits involved with that um, and eventually ended up breaking away from that in my teenage years, uh, mainly because they had me in like a pre-seminary where we were doing what was called discipleship training, where you go through all the bells and whistles, learning apologetics and all of that. But the questions that I was asking genuinely trying to understand, well, that doesn't make sense and that doesn't jive with this other experiences that I've been having. Right. So unfortunately, well, fortunately or unfortunately, however you want to look at it, the uh, the questions that I was asking was actually causing 
uh, crisis of faith for the others of the course. Mm -hmm. And so they started pushing me out. It eventually came to a head when uh, the pastor of the church uh, pulled me aside and asked me not to come back. Wow. Um, and about a week later, I was over at my aunt and uncle's house being the subject of an exorcism. <laughs> I which, had one of those. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was laughing the entire time. I just couldn't. It was too amusing to me that it's like, this is, no so you didn't here. volunteer to, <laughs> no, it's like, they were, just, it was their own, the spirit of doubt out of you. <laughs> it, it was their own little moral panic. They were freaking out mm -hmm. because here was this person in the family that wasn't complying, that wasn't just keeping quiet, uh, far too curious for their own good. I was told constantly growing up that I was too smart for my own good, which always kind of struck me as odd. Uh, how can you be too smart for your own good? Right. Uh, unless, of course, the biggest crime in the culture that you're in is to ask questions. So I split from the church at that point completely um, and started to, to delve more into my connection with nature. Spent uh, right around a year just kind of exploring all the different paths getting to know you know what is hinduism what is buddhism mm -hmm. um i you know read through uh sorry brain blanked out <laughs> um read through all of the different texts like the Bhagavad Gita, the uh, uh the quran and all of those just to right. get an idea of what was out there and eventually, uh, I think I was either 16 or 17, and I, I happened to be in Midwest City um, and dropped by Nature's Treasures mm -hmm. and met Linda. Yeah. And she, you know, shoved a few books in my hands and I was off to the races learning about paganism. Um, now, before you go on, what do you practice now? What How would you describe it? So the best way that I can describe it is animistic tribal heathenism. There's a huge focus on the communal aspect as well as uh, personal practice. There's, it's a balance between the two. All right. So take me back to Linda and these books then. And how did that slowly well, take you that direction? Initially, I kind of glommed on to the, the craze about Celtic stuff that was going on at the time. And something just didn't sit right with me. I, I started to feel like maybe it's because the majority of my ancestors weren't Celtic. I, I've got a little bit of that blood in me through my mother's side, but predominantly I'm Norwegian and Danish. And so knowing that part of the family history i started to dig in into the ancestry into kind of understanding where do i come from and why is it that my ancestors are kind of screaming at me to move away from the celtic path and eventually came to the conclusion oh well maybe i should be learning about the norse stuff because that's where my family comes from right um got kind of heavy into it after that uh involved with various different groups uh there was a uh, 
small group that got together uh, a couple years there that was more eclectic, a lot of different paths. And my exposure, exposure to the more Wicca side of things left me feeling unfulfilled, right? There, there, was, there were components that were missing. It felt, it almost felt like when you look at, at true country folk and they see somebody come out and pretend to be country, the city slickers, right. it felt that way for me because I'd spent so much time actually out in the bush and all of that was lacking from it. I didn't understand why. If, if the whole point of this is being close to nature, why aren't you going out into nature? <laughs> so at that point, I just started kind of going off on my own. And there were several events that, that culminated that resulted in me eventually becoming homeless. But I had all these survival skills, so I just kind of went off into the woods and did my own thing for a few years. Wow. Literally living off of the land. So, how does what you practice differ, or how is it similar to, say, Asatru, Norse paganism, so some of those traditions? Organizations like Asatru and the Troth have a tendency to focus more on taking the old myths and legends and turning them into a church, kind of like what. Catholicism. Like a religion, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and what I do is much more connected to the land and the spirits rather than focusing on just the Aesir. I'm working Aesir, Vanir, Troll, Jordan, all of them. I don't limit myself to any one particular group or tribe. Okay. Uh, and a lot of that comes back to the communal aspect of it. One of the things that we see when we look at modern practice in Scandinavia is that although the practice has evolved to survive Christianity and the Inquisition and all of those things that came about that were absolutely horrible in, in Europe, despite that, we see Trollum surviving in modern day Sweden. And it's a huge part of their culture. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, they actually have uh, a few different people that teach actively there. Um, I think it's Johannes Garbach is one of the, the more well-known authors on the subject. And his practice is heavily influenced by Christian uh, influences because he's gathering up the folklore right. that has survived. And a lot of them that were written down were... Right. And, and to that end, I also look at a lot of the things that go on in the modern practice of heathenry, mm -hmm. and it kind of makes me shake my head a little bit, because instead of looking at Snorri Sturluson's work, who was a Christian and was actively trying to convince the Vatican that Scandinavian people did not need to be further investigated because, oh, look, we anticipated it. So his entire set of Eddas and Sagas that he wrote were a heavily Christianized version where he literally changes the roles of almost all of the entities in the stories to fit that narrative. And yet time and again, I see so many heathen organizations touting his work as like holy writ. Right, right. If our entire purpose in this is to understand the spirits and understand the land and understand the gods, 
why are we looking to the literature of someone that was actively trying to corrupt it? So I had a huge issue with that, and that's what caused me to split away from Also True and all of those groups and just focus entirely on learning from the land, learning from spirits. And that was what put me onto the quote unquote shamanic path, uh, breaking away from society, breaking away from the tethers that were holding me back to preconceived notions so that I can really do a deep dive into what is actually there. Right, right. So as your practice, and it's funny in English, I wish there were a better word than shaman and shamanism, but there's yeah. not. There's not one that's equivalent that, that captures some of that. Well, in not English, not yeah. in English. Um, within ancient Scandinavian tradition, it would be considered uh, say matter, which is unfortunately seen through a negative lens by most because it brings in connotations of energy and all of that, which in and of itself is horribly misconstrued today because most of the records that were kept were Christian patriarchy that were actively trying to purge that. Right, right. Any work with spirits, it must be the devil or whatever. Right. And especially men working with spirits, and they were always trying to characterize women as, you know, consorting with the devil, and therefore they were the ones who were doing the magic. And so history was rewritten to favor the the new ruling religion that had invaded. The reality is that we have mountains of archaeological evidence that show that men were just as engaged in theater as women. Um, sometimes it was a more private uh, activity that, that was shunned, but this was mostly towards the end of the pagan era. Uh, when Christianity was already starting to take over and the influence of patriarchy was starting to assert itself on the, the culture. Uh, before that, you see a lot more evidence that men and women had equal parts in magical practice. So what does this look like in practice? In practice, it is all about being close to nature. Uh, very often, when I'm teaching people how to do these things, how to engage with spirit, how to uh, open yourself up to that trance work and journey work and all of these other things that we, we use is uh, almost like buzzwords in the pagan community. A lot of people think they know what it means, but they've never actually experienced it. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I do that. But do you really? Right. And that's where, where the class that I've been teaching over at the, the Labyrinth Temple has kind of unveiled a few things and kind of unraveled that uh, cocoon of perception where they've got this outward perception that they're trying to present. But in reality, there are threads that are not quite connected to make the full pattern. Um, key, uh, I believe she's done your show before um, for yep. the Obad yep. Grove. Mm -hmm. She's been helping me out with the class and a few other things as well. And she likened it to pagan graduate school, where people that have been on their path for a while, but and they know all the terms and they know kind of sort mm -hmm. of what they're doing, they come in to kind of connect the dots and start to really put it together into a whole practice. Right. It actually gets me very excited because I 
I've, I know Key and I have talked about this. Sometimes I feel like paganism stays in the 101. Mm -hmm. It stays in this elementary. It's the same stuff. It never goes any deeper. It doesn't mm -hmm. challenge. There's not a lot of thought like there used to be. Yeah. And so even hearing you speak, I'm like, oh, this is great. This is really good. <laughs> well, the ultimate goal is to create an environment in which we can foster healthy relationships. When you're dealing with spirits, they, they're people too. They have many of the same mental and physical ailments that we do. They have many of the same, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Personality types isn't right, but what it really comes down to is that any skills that you can build to interact with humans can be used to interact with spirits. It's about creating right relationships, healthy relationships. And you'll find in the spirit worlds all kinds of maladapted coping mechanisms, just like you do in the human world. Oftentimes, I find myself actually having to engage in almost like a therapy session with the spirits that I'm working with just to get them to the point where they can actually sit down and go, okay, yeah, we can have a conversation. Um, because especially in the modern world, we have so much destruction of the natural world. We have pollutions, we have uh, factory farming that's going on. We have these uh, wholesale slaughter of ecosystems for our own resource gathering. Uh, with no thought to how that affects anything, both in the natural world and especially in the spirit world. This is why I call uh, monotheistic religions world-denying religions, because they have no thought for that at all. Right. In their mind, all things spiritual are in some far-off place called heaven or hell. Right. They have no concept that, no, the spirit's right here with us. And there's a term that's used in metaphysics called coterminous realities. And this is where we have uh, multiple different dimensionalities of reality kind of pancaked on top of each other, but they share the same physical space. And so when we talk about walking the realms, we talk about, you know, I'm going to go visit uh, Jotunheim or Valhalla uh, or whatever it is that, that the journeying work is calling for, we're not going to some far off place. We're going to a place that is in alignment with that energy, but it's like a Swiss cheese of realms. Everything is, is intertwined with the branches and roots of Yggdrasil, drawing it all together into one reality. So what makes that difference? It's perception. It's perspective. When you shift your conscious mind into alignment with those energies through trance work and other various means, uh, something that comes up often in discussions on animism, especially in the academic circles, is the use of psychedelics. It's been at the root of these traditions since before we could even make stone tools. In fact, there's research that suggests that these chemicals in these mushrooms was actually what drove us to continually evolve larger and larger brains. It opened up our minds to other realities. So you have that, and you have various forms of trance work, for instance, using the veil, 
moving into flames. There's many, many different ways of achieving this. But once you get into that space, you can then create an intention to travel to a given realm. Now, obviously you're not going to be going to a good example trying to go to Jotunheim in a place that is a mismatch of lots of different biomes in a small area probably isn't going to work very well but if you go onto a mountain where that energy is already abundant because of the grandiosity of the mountain spirit itself which we would call classify as a Jotun spirit then you're going to have a much easier time of, of actually making that contact spiritually. Um, so let's say you have that contact, you, you're doing a journey work, you're there, now what? You're there. Well, at and that point, it comes down to building relationships. Mm -hmm. time before. When we build healthy relationships, there are a few different components to that. We have our commitments which in heathen we call Odin's. We have the, uh, the glue that kind of holds it together in the, the buzzword of reciprocity. Okay. What is reciprocity? Reciprocity, quite simply put, is the free giving of time, energy, and resources to further mutual goals. Or even just to further someone else's goal knowing that they are then going to take their time, energy, and resources to fruit yours. This is the very basics of community building, something that I feel has been almost lost in the modern world. Everything is so focused on authoritarianism and uh, rules and laws and regulations that we've lost sight of how it is that we actually structure our relationships to be healthy in the first place. So being shamanic is it's like a cross between being a wild man survivalist and a therapist trying to, to get things to the point where everyone can agree on the same things. It's a lot of people liken it to being an ambassador, which is partially true. You know, you, you bring your community's concerns across to the spirits and then in, in acts of reciprocity, find ways to be able to work things out. But what does that look like on the other side? What, what is it they need for that reciprocity? Well, for one, they're not making tools. So we have the concept of offerings. You make something with your hands. It could be um, a stone axe. It could be some cordage, maybe just like a rope, right? And part of what's important in this, so many people I see these days, especially in the neo-pagan scene, they go out and they buy all their materials and they put it all together and they say a few words and oh, look, a spell, mm -hmm. right? But where's the root of that? Why are we doing this? Within this tradition, we understand that when you make something, you're putting time and energy into it. And that energy takes on its own life. This is where the idea of talismans comes from. When you 
put all of that effort and blood, sweat, and tears of an artistic project or whatever it is that you're doing, you are imbuing a part of yourself, of your own spirit, into it. There's many different vagaries of that. They range from the, the breath of life, the owned, uh, on over to uh, the, the spirit of the item itself and how you're transforming that and, and many other pieces to it that, that would take a long time to explain. But to boil it all down to the a simple principle is that what you're doing is you're taking the spirit of that item and you're offering the spirit over so that then that spirit on the other side can take the spirit of that item and now they have that tool. And then in exchange, they may bless the physical object with a portion of their power. So tell me how that offering works, because I was picturing uh, you make this axe and you offer it, you toss it in the fire, but it sounds like not. Not always. Okay. Sometimes, yes. It depends on what the end goal is. If it's that you want to have a ritual implement, for instance, say we want to bring the uh, elemental energies of a storm into our ritual through some sort of lightning. You're not going to call down lightning in the middle of your ritual. Right. That's psychotic. It's suicidal, right? right? <laughs> Instead, you're going to create this item that has the ability to spark off of steel, like for instance, a flint axe. And then you're going to offer that over to Pro, Yotin, maybe Thor, whoever it is that you're working with, and you have that relationship already built up. At that point, there's an exchange of energies that takes place. They take the tool's spirit and then replace it with a portion of their own. And in, in that act, that object becomes sacred. So, in, you know, in teaching classes at the temple, is, is your goal to establish maybe a community we of have. practitioners? You have, have actually. Right. Talk um, a little bit about that. So we had our first which is uh, a sacrificial offering um, on the 31st, New Year's mm -hmm. Eve. Um, there were several interesting synchronicities that came with that, but during that we engaged in a uh, practice of taking oaths. The, the, the whole concept of the New Year's resolution is actually born out of this tradition where we all take oaths together of things that we want to accomplish in the coming year. And we have what is called uh, Haminya, which there's no direct translation, but a rough translation is luck, but there's a very different concept of what luck is within Scandinavian understanding, which really comes down to being an intrinsic attribute of the person. It is not only how lucky they are, but also the, the culmination of all of the things that they've done, their honor, their, uh, their skills, all of these different pieces of themselves that comes together to make this uh, part of themselves, which is in itself a part of the Dicir, which are female tutelary spirits and protectors that are a part of the self that can separate off. You can actually loan your Haminya to others hmm. uh, if they're going on a particularly dangerous mission, for instance. And, but when you take oaths together all over a single horn, you're intermingling 
your energy. We have the concept of the old, which is your magical voice, using the whole voice um, in a process that's very similar to throat singing that then creates a magical energy off of the self called Megan. And even just normal spoken voice has this to some extent. Within our tradition, the breath of life is everything. It's what is the creative magical force of the universe. And so when we do this, all of our hamanias become intermingled into what is in that ehorn. And when that is given as sacrifice on the altar, then you're making a pact between each other and the spirits that are present, whatever gods and spirits were invited into that space, that you are going to do these things. And so you are now honor bound to not only do your own, but to help everyone else that you took those oaths with to accomplish their goals and thereby grow your hamania. You're increasing your honor. You're increasing that portion of yourself which produces your magical capabilities because your megan, which is your magical reserves, is produced by the hamania and utilized via only. So That's very interesting. That's it, there's an almost snowball effect that takes place right. in doing these things together as a community. So I guess, you know, my final question for you today would be if a listener wants to learn more, how do they... Where do they start? How do they begin? The easiest and quickest method, get out in the woods. Commune with nature. Get to know what animals and plants are in your area. Get to understand what they are and how they interact. Look at the cycles that take place within nature. Um, something that is central to heathenry is the cycle of birth, life, death, and rebirth. And we see this repeated all throughout nature, as well as many different spiritual paths. But we put a, a special emphasis on it because this cyclical nature, these ebbs and flows, the ups and downs, these are the things that fate is made out of. And by understanding this, we can then learn how to leave that thing. To get started is simply to be receptive to it, to acknowledge that the spirits exist, to, to begin to try to build some sort of relationship with them. And often it starts with the self, understanding who you are, where you come from. It's not bound to one subsect of people. You don't have to be Scandinavian to practice heathenry. You can have a connection to these spirits even without that. The system, the path, the language that we use is simply a framework around which we have these interactions and, and rationalize it. Our mythology is an anthropomorphization to make it easier for us to understand. The truth is, the spirits are the spirits, no matter what we call them. Native Americans, they have their own ways of saying it, but it's the same thing. You look at the Sami in Europe, it's the same thing thing. There are slight differences in how it's practiced and what things we do, but that's all born out of trial and error. My own experience of going into shamanism was simply living in the forest and learning from the forest and all of the different spirits that were there. 
eventually I came back out of it wiser for it, understanding more about how this works. So get out of your house, go out and do things, learn some bushcraft skills, learn how to interact with the plants, go hunting. These are all important aspects of understanding our place in the natural world. Well, man, thank you so much for being on here today. I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, would you be willing to help us out? Things you can do are write a positive review on Apple Podcasts or share the podcast on your social media or, or tell others about it or consider subscribing to our Patreon, which goes towards better equipment for this podcast in whatever way you can help. Thank you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you want to continue listening, please consider joining our Patreon or visiting us on Facebook. Until next time, this is PAX. Mm -hmm.